Gracious Lord, we're here gathered this morning before You. We pray, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins. We ask, Lord, that there will be nothing between You and us as we are together this morning. We pray for the presence of Your Holy Spirit and that He will speak to our hearts. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The title for this morning is No Non-Essentials. What I've discovered as a teacher is one of the worst questions you can ask a senior in high school is, where are you going to college? And it only gets worse when it's followed up with, what are you going to study? And I found this to be a question that seniors dread because many of them don't know. In fact, just yesterday I was talking to a young person here, and I was asking them, how, uh, how old are you? And they were telling me, they said they were going to be a senior, and I said, have people started asking yet? And he was like, asking what? Where are you going to school, and what are you going to study? And he's like, yes. And I was like, so here it comes. Do you know? And actually, he, he had some ideas, but still it was kind of up in the air. And when it comes to Christianity, a lot of times as Christian young people, we want to know what is God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? That's a question that comes up a lot. And a lot of times we're waiting for the lightning bolt to come from heaven and to strike us and to reveal to us exactly what it is. This morning... I'm here to share with you that the lightning bolt has come from heaven. It's here. It's given it to us. It's just a matter of accepting what it is that God has called us to do. And it's interesting, in in the, the Christian world today, we have kind of compartmentalized life. We have our spiritual life, and then we have our secular life. And this started a long time ago as Christianity began to separate the clergy and the laity, right? You have those who are in the ministry, and then you have the lay people. And we've begun to compartmentalize our lives because we have our spiritual activities, and then we have our secular activities. Not so much that the secular activities are immoral, But just that we've begun to separate how we understand how we live our life. This is my spiritual life at this time, and this is my secular life at this time. The other thing we've begun to experience in today's culture is that if I'm going to be an intellectual, if I'm going to be in the intellectual world, that is the secular part of the world. My higher education sometimes takes place because of the courses that we want to study in the secular, intellectual realm of the world. And then I have the private sector of my life, which is the spiritual part of what I do. And so when we're trying to figure out what is God's call for my life, sometimes young people are like, I know I want to work for God. But a lot of times we think that means one of three things. I need to be a teacher, I need to be a pastor, or I need to be a doctor. Right? And maybe that's not something that we're interested in. But man, what what does the Lord want me to do? And so then we begin to face this struggle. 
And then on top of that, we begin to wonder, is what I'm doing, is that really essential to what God has in store? I want to share with you this morning, there are no non-essentials. Every single one of us has been called to do something for the Lord. Every single one of us. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen what? Do you know? You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special what? People. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous what? Light. You are a royal priesthood. The priesthood of all believers, right? Something that had started to get lost in history and then we had the Reformation and it comes back. We're all to be a part of this, but I think we've begun to lose it again. So this morning, there's three things I want us to realize. First, I want us to realize God's will for our life, which is eternal life. Second, to understand that His will for our life is to tell others about that. And then thirdly, that God, when we commit ourselves to Him, makes Himself responsible for the success of the work that He's called us to. God will make Himself responsible. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. This is where I want to begin. The calling. The calling. What is God's will for my life? John chapter 6. Popular story. Feeding of the 5,000. We know the story well, right? John chapter 6. Let's start in verse 2. It says, Then a great multitude followed Him because they saw the signs which He had performed on those who were diseased. So first of all, we see people are following Jesus because of what He's doing. They're being healed. They're seeing these miraculous things and so they're following Him. And 5,000 have gathered and it comes to the time of day where the people are hungry and the disciples come to Jesus. What are we going to do? And we know the story, right? Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a small lunch from a young boy. But there's something interesting that happens. The part of this story that really caught my attention was John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. After they had seen what had happened, it says, Then those men... When they had seen the sign that Jesus did, this feeding of the 5,000, this is what they said. This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So these guys said, we recognize the signs. We've studied the prophecy. We understand what is supposed to happen. And this guy's got to be it. But then something else interesting happens. Look at verse 15. It says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. And this is the part of the story that caught my attention. I didn't understand this at first. 
Why would somebody want to force Jesus to be king? If you understand the prophecy, if you understand who the prophet is who's to come into the world, why are they forcing him to become king? And then why is he running from it? And I thought about this for a second, and then I thought about the context of the story. You see, this is a group of people who've had a lot of trouble for the past 400 years. Since leaving Babylon, they hadn't really been their own people. They had always been ruled by someone else. And currently, the Jews were being ruled by the Romans. And so they studied the prophecies diligently of a Savior that was going to come, of a Savior that was going to set up a kingdom, of a Savior that was going to free them from oppression. And Jesus fit their expectation perfectly. No one better to free them from the Romans than someone who could lead a multitude of people, somebody who could feed an army, and someone who could heal an army. What better Savior could there be? I'll fight for Jesus. Sure, why not? I'll go into battle because if I get hurt, guess what? He's just coming on. Heal you, heal you, heal you, heal you. Right? Other things that armies face. What decimates an army? Food and water, right? When you move an army, you got to go from food source to food source, water source to water source. Hey, man, this was just a little lunch, and he fed 5,000. This is perfect. He's going to feed the army. Jesus fit their expectation perfectly. He was their perfect Messiah. And they said, let's not waste any time. Let's make him king right now. Let's get the party started and let's finish this. Now here's what I want you to do. Take a moment. Think of your greatest prayer request that's on your heart right now. Just take a minute and think about it. What is, what is the prayer request that lays upon your heart the most right now. Once you've got it, hang on to it for a minute. I'm going to tell you what to do with it. You got it? You got the prayer request? Now, I want to talk for a moment about a story of the paralytic. You remember that story? He's, he, he can't walk and his friends take him and they, they, they take the roof off of a house. And they lower him before Jesus. What do you think that paralytic's most essential prayer request at that time is? I want to walk again, right? I want to move. I want to have life, right? And here his friends, they take him and they lower him before Jesus. Now, do you have the prayer request? Is it there? And as they lower him, he looks at Jesus, and this is what Jesus says. Your sins are forgiven. What if you brought your prayer request before the Lord, and the words you heard were your sins are forgiven? My response is, well, thank you, Lord, but can we get on to the rest of it? Right? 
Hold on, Lord, I think you missed it. My friend is sick. Yes, thank you, that's very nice. I know that I'm a sinner, but let's move on. It kind of stings a little bit. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're a little bit more spiritually mature than myself. But think about it. You bring your greatest prayer request before Jesus, and he looks at you and says, your sins are forgiven. Thank you, but that's not what I was expecting or asking for. Lord, I think you missed the request. I didn't need forgiveness of sins right now. What I need is to walk again. Now, did Jesus heal him? Absolutely. But the first thing he did was he healed him spiritually. Sometimes we come to Jesus or we see Jesus and we have the expectation of this is what God, this is what I want. This is, I, this is my prayer request. The, the people of Israel, this was it. God's will for our life is to be free, to be our own nation again, to be a mighty nation. And Jesus fit exactly what they were expecting. But if you read the rest of John chapter 6, what they get is completely different. And by the time you get to the end of John chapter 6, what do most of his disciples do? They leave. Go to the end. Jesus gives us this bread of life sermon, and we'll get to it in a second, but I, I want you to see what happens at the end of what Jesus shares with them. In verse 61, after Jesus has told them that he's come, that he's come in the flesh, that he's come to be their Savior, in verse 61 it says, When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, that they complained that he said, I, am the, I have come from heaven. You've got to partake of me. They've, com they've complained about this, and he said to them, Does this offend you? When Jesus doesn't meet your expectations that you've laid out for him, does it offend us? Lord, but my family member is still sick. What if that was his answer to the, re the prayer request of someone in your life that's, that's passing? Right? And he says, does this offend you? And, and they're struggling with this. Look at verse 62. It says, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are what? Life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. 65, and, and he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Now, here it is, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Isn't that interesting? When they realized that Jesus wasn't there, to fit their expectation, they turned and walked with Jesus no more. Isn't that interesting? What was it that was offensive to them? Go back in the story. Go back to um, verse 38. John chapter 6, 
verse 38. After Jesus feeds the 5,000 and they go to make him king by force, he then retreats. He's like, they're coming. This isn't good for them. And he goes to the other side, but they follow him and they find him the next day. And when they find him the next day, they're looking for the food again. And Jesus says, look, you're just looking for me because I filled your belly. You need to work for something more. You need to be searching for something greater. You need to be looking for something that will last, not just something for here and now. How short-sighted is that of me to want it now? He says, I'm trying to offer you the bread of life for eternity. And so they have all these questions. Look at verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now here it is. When some people are wondering, what is it? What is the essential call that God has for my life? You're about to see it in verses 39 and 40. He says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up in the last day. Verse 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son of Man and believes in him may have what? Everlasting life. So you ask the question, what is God's will for my life? Understand first and foremost, he is calling you into heaven with him. He is calling you to everlasting life. If you ever sit down and say, what is God's will for my life? Know that he is calling you. And you look at this and you say, oh, what is everlasting life? I need a definition. Jesus gives us red letter words that give us the definition of eternal life. If you go to John chapter 17, verse 3, there it is, defined from the mouth of Jesus Christ, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know, capital U, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. His will for your life first is to know Jesus, to have a personal relationship with the Savior. That is his call for your life, to be with him to believe in him and accept the sacrifice that has been offered for you. So if you're sitting there and wondering, what am I supposed to do for the Lord? I'm supposed to be a part of this royal priesthood. First, we must understand that Jesus is our Savior. If you don't start there, everything else will fall apart. When I listen to seniors want to know, what is it that I'm supposed to do with my life? We can't even start the conversation about what God wants for them if they haven't accepted Jesus. Because if you haven't accepted and believed, you won't want what he's going to set before you. 
Sometimes when we ask that question, really what we're saying is, I'm lost in this world, and I want to find a direction. I want somebody to show me where I'm supposed to go, and we're trying to do it on our own will to fit our own expectations, and Jesus is trying to say, I'm here, I've laid it out for you, I want you. But we're trying to do it on our own. Well, Lord, that's great. I would love, I would love to be, you know, and uh, this, but I would really love to make more money. Lord, that, 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 that sounds really cool. You know, I, I get that, but I, I would rather do it this way. This is what offended those leaders was the fact that their expectation was not met by Jesus. First of all, we must come to realize that Jesus has called us to eternal life with him. He's called us into a personal relationship with him. When you start that relationship, everything else begins to fall into place as you get to know him. And it's interesting, if you go back to the end of the story, after most of the disciples leave him, in verse 67, Jesus then turns to the twelve, and he says, Do you also want to go away? And I love this, verse 68, this is what Peter says. Chapter 6, verse 68, he says, Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. We've been searching, and we understand that you have the words to eternal life. You have the key. The key is in Jesus. We must understand that Jesus is our bread of life. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the one who has done it for us. We must first accept Jesus. God's will, the first part is accepting Jesus and what he has offered. 1 Thessalonians verse, chapter 4, verse 3 says, and this is the will of the Father also, and this goes along with it, that you may be sanctified. And in accepting Jesus, he says you need to be sanctified because sin hurts you. Because sin hurts others. And so I'm calling you out of sin. I'm calling you out of these destructive things. This is God's will for our life. The next part is pretty simple after we've accepted what Christ has done, what he's here to offer and said, you know what? Not my will, but your will. Then it's very simple. Matthew 28, right? Turn there. Go to Matthew chapter 28. You've probably memorized this at some point in your life. The very end of Matthew. These are the instructions. These are the instructions that Jesus gives. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that, you ha that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the what? Even to the end of the age. 
Well, here it is. I got to teach and I got to baptize. These are descriptions of being in the ministry, which means pastor, teacher, medical missionary. Right? So he says, I've called you into this relationship. I've called you to believe in me. And now I'm calling you to tell other people, to lead them to me. But I want you to understand the most effective way that Jesus has for you to answer the call and his will for your life. The most effective way. There's a story. Go to Luke, or sorry, not Luke, Mark. Mark chapter 5. There's a story in Mark chapter 5, and it's the story of a woman. And this woman has had some medical issues, and she's been all over looking for doctors to heal her of what has been plaguing her. And she has looked everywhere, high and low, all the remedies, everywhere. Nothing has worked. And she has one last idea. If I can just touch the robe of Jesus. Now you might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with telling other people about Jesus? This is someone getting healed. Just wait. And we know how the story goes, right? She sees Jesus walking. As Jesus is walking, she's in the crowd. She's trying to be discreet. She doesn't want anybody to know. And so she, she, she gets in there and, and she walks up to him and she reaches out and just touches the robe of Jesus. And that's it. She's healed. And so I imagine that she's quietly and discreetly trying to sink back into the crowd. Not trying to be seen, not trying to make a big deal. But then, then Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And everybody's like, well, Jesus, there's a lot of people around you. I'm pretty sure a lot of people touched you. And he says, no, no, no. Somebody, somebody touched me. He felt the power leave him. And so he stops everything. And I don't know what type of personality you have. Some people have the type of personality where they're like, look, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be heard. I just want to do my thing and I want to leave. And I imagine that's the way this woman is, right? I don't want to make a big deal. Just thank you, Jesus. And she's grateful, right? But Jesus stops everything. Imagine her face is probably turning red because now he's making a big deal about it. And we know the words that he says to her. Verse 34, Mark chapter 5, verse 34. And he, said, 34, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Wow, what wonderful words, right? Desire of Ages says something phenomenal about this and about what God has called us to in our lives. Here's what it says. After healing the woman, Jesus desired her to acknowledge the blessing she had received. After she had received the bread of life, after she had believed in Jesus, after she had accepted Jesus, he wanted her to acknowledge it. Look at this. It says the gifts which the gospel offers are not to be secured by stealth or enjoyed in secret, 
So the Lord calls upon us for confession of his goodness. Isaiah 43, 12 says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. And you're wondering, what is this talking about? Let's keep reading. Look at this. Our confession of his faithfulness is heaven's chosen agency for revealing Christ to the world. We are to acknowledge his grace as made known through the holy men of old. Notice this. We are to acknowledge his grace as made known through the holy men of old. But that which will be the most effective... I'm going to say it again in case you miss it. It says, that which is to be the most effective is the testimony of our own experience. I think you missed it. Let me say it again. That which will be the most effective is the testimony of our own experience. Once we've accepted Jesus, if you want to know what's my call, what am I supposed to do, what is Jesus expecting of me, how am I supposed to be effective? I'm not a preacher. I'm not a doctor. I'm not good at teaching. It's simple. It's not complicated. It's easy. Share your story. Sometimes the Bible is so simple, it's absurd. Sometimes it's so simple, we don't even want to do it. What? Dip in the water seven times? No, that's easy. I, I, you, yeah. Share my testimony? What? You mean I don't have to start a program, hold an evangelistic series, baptize 50 people? No. Share your testimony. And it doesn't matter what your vocation is. It doesn't matter whether you're in high school, whether you're in college, whether you're doing a graduate degree, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a pastor, a teacher, a pilot, you can still share your testimony. And it is the most effective way Keep reading here. It says, We are witnesses for God as we reveal in ourselves the working of a power that is divine. Here's why this is so effective. Every individual has a life distinct from all others. And an experience differing essentially from theirs. These precious acknowledgments to the praise of the glory of His grace when supported by a Christ-like life, have an irresistible power that works for the salvation of souls. Why is it so effective? Because it is unique to you. Your story is not my story. It's your story. And there's someone else out there who doesn't relate to me, but they'll relate to you. They have a similar struggle. And the Lord is saying, you have a unique experience with me, and I want you to share that with people. First, accept him as your Savior, as the bread of life. Accept the everlasting life, the relationship with Jesus. Number two, share it with people. The most effective way is just sharing your testimony in your church at work. Well, how am I supposed to do it at work? I was at a church doing a seminar with, with my wife, and a guy came up. He said, this is great. He said, every 
every lunch break. My coworkers are curious. Why do I believe what I believe? And so when we come in at lunch, we all sit down and I get out my Bible and we just talk and I just share what Jesus has done for me. Because he lives his life in a certain way, they look and they say, that's kind of odd. Why do you do that? You have to tell me more. You can't work from sundown to sundown. This is strange. You don't use certain words. You eat a certain diet. This is weird. Tell me more. You're happy. You're smiling. I don't get it. Tell me more. The most effective way. And so Jesus understood. In all that he was doing, he stopped this woman so that she could share her testimony about what God had done for her. And then the last part, when we, when we commit to him, he makes himself responsible for the success that will take place. Go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 24 and 25 are interesting to me, and this is why. Matthew 24, for the Bible scholars out there, what, what is this book predominantly about, or this chapter, and, and, and what do we talk about when we're... Signs of the times, right? Signs of the times. Jesus is coming again. The destruction. When's it going to happen, Lord? Well, here it is. All the craziness is going to happen. It will be like in the days of Noah. They're going to be so wicked you can't believe it. But the story doesn't end there because there is a lot of time that will pass between the words that were spoken in Matthew chapter 24 and the second coming of Jesus. And so Matthew chapter 25 reveals to us what am I supposed to be doing in the meantime, I get it. The signs are here. It's been a hundred and whatever years since 1844. What am I supposed to be doing? That's Matthew chapter 25. And you can even go back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 45, or even verse 44. It says, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And this is interesting. Be ready. And a lot of times we talk about this. It's like, be ready. Okay, get my life right. And I'm not downplaying that. That's, yes, your sanctification, right? That's part of his will. But there's more to being ready. There's something to do. Not just for my life but for others. Because if you can start in verse 45, it talks about a faithful and an unfaithful servant. And if you look at this, Jesus is coming again. There will be faithful and there will be unfaithful. Jesus is coming again and then we get the parable of the virgins. There will be those who have received the Holy Spirit, who've hung on to the Holy Spirit, who've planned ahead. And there will be those who have not. We need to be searching, praying for the Holy Spirit, right? Ready for the bridegroom. Okay. And then we get to the parable of the talents. Now, you're a faithful servant. Now, you've got the Holy Spirit. Now, I have given you 
a specific talent, a specific gift that is going to be the avenue through which you share the experience of accepting Jesus into your life. And that's the parable of the talents. You have something to do. He's given you the talent. The question is, are you going to bury it or are you going to multiply what God has given you? And all of us, just like our testimony, have a unique talent that is special just for you. It is a, maybe, maybe it's cooking. I, am, I praise God every day that my wife's talent is cooking. Every day. So good. Maybe it's connecting. I was just talking to someone the other day. Uh, they do baking on YouTube. And they make a living doing that. I didn't know you could... Anyway, they do well at it. And they're doing the health stuff on YouTube. That's their talent. They're sharing their talent, their experience with Jesus. Some people are entrepreneurs. Some people work well with their hands. Sometimes we look at certain vocations and like, well, that's not really... Uh, you know, when we talk about non-essentials, one of the people I admire the most in my life is a man who is the plant manager at the school that I work at. He is one of the most essential parts of what we do at school. Is he up front leading the worship? No. Is he making the decisions and moving the school forward with the vision of curriculum? No. But every day he makes sure that the gates are open, that the lights are on, that the locks are fixed, that the garden is growing, that the lawn is mowed, that the fire extinguishers are up to date. When something needs to be built, he builds it. When we need to remodel a classroom or a music room so that we can start an orchestra, he does it. One of the greatest ministries at San Gabriel Academy is someone who you probably would never even know existed. But that's how God has led him. And there are students, every time we go on a mission trip, they just, they just pack his truck. Everybody's fine. I want to sit with him. And for 10 hours on the road, they just sit there and they talk and they laugh. And he shares his testimony with students. Because that's the talent that God has given him. And you might ask yourself, well, I'm worried. It's stressful. I want to share something with you here about the talents. This is what it says in Christ's object lesson. When we give ourselves wholly to God and in our work follow His direction, here it is. When we give ourselves and follow His direction, He makes Himself responsible let me say it again. He makes himself responsible for its accomplishment. 
I, don't, I, I think you might have missed it, so I'm going to read this sentence one more time. When we give ourselves wholly to God and in our work follow His directions, He makes Himself responsible for its accomplishment. He would not have us conjecture as to the success of our honest endeavors. Don't question it. Don't wonder, is this going to be a success? He says, don't even question it. I'm going to make myself responsible. Not once should we think of failure. We are to cooperate with the one who knows no failure. Is that encouraging? When we commit, when we give ourselves wholly to Him, you are not responsible. Now, that might be difficult for some of us. I get it. It's difficult for me sometimes too. But when you give it to Him, He makes Himself responsible for the success. And look at this. She keeps going. It says, We should not talk of our own weakness and inability. This is a manifest distrust of God and denial of His Word. When we murmur because of our burdens or refuse the responsibility He calls upon us to bear, we are virtually saying that He is a hard master and that He requires what He has not given us power to do. Now that's either the best thing we've ever heard or the worst thing we've ever heard. The best thing, because now we don't have an excuse for anything but success. And the worst thing, because now we don't have an excuse for anything but success. Because Jesus says, give it to me. Don't worry about tomorrow. No need. Here's today. This is what I've called you to. Share it with people because Matthew chapter 25 ends with the litmus test of what we should be doing until Jesus comes again. We should be faithful servants. We should have that Holy Spirit. We should have our lamps trimmed and burning. We should be using our talents that he has given us. And why should we be using it? We should be using it for people. Let me say it again. We should be using it for people. Because that's what Matthew chapter 25 ends with. Look in verse 33. This is what he says. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. Who's that about? People. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Who's that about? People. I was a stranger and you took me in. Who is that about? People. I was naked and you clothed me. Who's that about? Okay, people. All right. I was sick and you visited me. Who's that about? People. I was in prison and you came to me. Who's that about? People. When you did, when did, when did, and then, and then they'll, they'll ask, when, when did you, when, when, did we, when did we do this? When were you naked? When did we clothe you? He says, if you did it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Because the gospel is about people. Because the calling that God has given you in your life is about people. The testimony that he's given you, he's given you to share with 
people. The gospel is about people. If you can't use the law to heal people, we're in trouble. If you can't use the prophecy to bring light to people, we're in trouble. If this isn't about people, we've already started off on the right foot, wrong foot. So when you sit there and you're like, man, and what I, is, is what I'm doing essential? The answer is yes. You are essential to the kingdom of God. You are essential to hastening the second coming through the testimony that God has given you. When you accept him, when you receive him, this is the bread of life. I accept, not my expectations, Lord, your expectations. He reveals to you that testimony. When he brings healing into your life, he says, now I want you to share that with someone else. I've given you a talent. This is your skill. Do it through what I have blessed you with. Don't try to do it the way someone else does it. Do it the way I have blessed you. Share that with people. Multiply that talent for people. Be a faithful servant for people. Have the Holy Spirit so you can bless people. Because in the end, the gospel is about people. And as long as it's about people, there are no non-essentials. Because each one of us has a unique way to connect with people. He's called you. He's called you to everlasting life. He's called you with a testimony and says, I've forgiven you. This is it. And then he says, this is the talent I want you to share it with people. Sometimes the hardest thing in this is to accept the fact that, you know what, he might call me to be the person who gets really not a lot of recognition in the story. Maybe I'm just the person who pulls the the roof apart and lowers them down. We don't know their names. We don't know anything about them. We know they were good guys. They didn't get any recognition. Maybe he's just called us to be that person in the scenes, when we talk about the body of Christ, how many of us want to be the big toe? Right? Well, you know, if I could be the bicep or something, that'd be cool. Right? But without the big toe, you can't balance. Something so small and so seems so inconsequential is so vital to being able to operate efficiently. It's crammed in a shoe. It is not glamorous. Nobody wants to see it. But it's vital. It's essential. There is no non-essential. And so this morning, my prayer for us is to recognize that Jesus is the bread of life, that he's come to give us everlasting life. He's come to offer and open his arms to the relationship that he desires to have with you. And as he does that, he's come to heal you. He's come to give you a testimony because he knows the most effective way is for you to share your testimony. And he's given you a talent. I don't know what it is, but he's given you a talent. And he says, here it is. There's the lightning bolt. It's here. It's come. Jesus, testimony, sharing. Very simple.
Some people are like, man, I can't wait to finish school because then I can enter the ministry. If you're waiting to finish school to enter the ministry, you're already, <laughs> you're already missing it. He's called you to do it right now. He's called you to do it today. He didn't say finish school and then start the ministry. He said, hey, look, you're in eighth grade. Start now. So I tell students, people are like, the young people will finish the work. I'm 31. No one listens to me anymore. Students are like, what are you talking about, Mr. Carpenter? We have to listen to you. Well, you do, kind of. But you expect me to say it, right? You expect me to say Jesus loves you. I've been teaching now for seven years. If I don't say it, it's weird. But when you say it, when an eighth grader says it, when someone young who's not supposed to say it, when they say it, that gets someone's attention. That's the uniqueness of what God has called us to. So I encourage you, as you go home today, as you, as you <clears throat> think about what God has called you to, what's the talent? To accept Him. To ask Him, what is the testimony that you want me to share? And then look at your talents. How is it that you want me to share it so that I can invest in people? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the testimonies that you've given to us. And Lord, there might be some of us here who are not sure about what our testimony is. But the good news is, is that's exactly where we need to be because you're waiting to reveal it to us. Maybe there's some of us here who haven't accepted you as a bread of life yet. But that's okay because that's exactly where you want us at so that we can accept you. Maybe well, I don't know what my talent is, Lord, but you want to reveal it. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you'll reveal those things to those who have questions that if they do have questions, that you'll guide them to someone who can give them counsel and wisdom, that we may use these gifts in the time as we wait, as we hasten your second coming, Lord, to invest in people. We thank you and we love you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.